You are listening to the Life Community Church Sermon Podcast. Life Community is a church for the city, making much about the name of Christ. This podcast is available through all major platforms, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. If you enjoy and are challenged by our teaching, we invite you to subscribe to the channel on whatever platform you choose as we seek to anchor ourselves to the unchanging truth of God's Word together. Thanks for listening. So we're going to open up to Hebrews 7 today. We are going to meet this mysterious man as we have in the past, a man named Melchizedek. Uh, He is a mysterious man that sort of cast a shadow over the whole of the letter of the Hebrews. And and once we kind of remove the mystery from him, what we will find is that he brings a surprising joy and understanding to the fullness, the purpose, and the necessity of Jesus Christ. And so if you've been here in our journey through the book of Hebrews, you have probably heard the name Melchizedek multiple times. He first was mentioned in chapter 5 uh, as the one in which Jesus took his office of the great high priest from, that Jesus Christ is the great high priest from the order of Melchizedek. What that means is that, that he descended from his lineage in that high priest. Now, his name, Melchizedek, which I'm really struggling Uh, Doesn't roll off my tongue very nicely, so you might hear four different pronunciations of that word. That name is sufficient enough to pique our curiosity. But when we learn about his sort of um, scarcity within our whole scripture, it piques our curiosity even more. And so I have to admit that the first few times that I read the book of Hebrews, uh, when I heard the name Melchizedek, there were images that came into my head to associate who he was. And so when I read the name Melchizedek, sometimes I pictured the Eye of Sauron from the Lord of the Rings, and I thought, is that what Melchizedek is, his mystery guy? Or is he the enigmatic superhero Batman? Like, this is kind of, is this Melchizedek? Kind of pictured him that way. And so what we want to do is pull back the curtain a little bit and try to understand him a little bit more today, and we'll continue in that journey next week. And so what I want to do is because we're laying out some heavy foundation today, there's not a lot of practical teaching, which means not a lot of things that we're going to take home and apply in our life about this. What I want to do is give you a roadmap of where we're going, all right? So what we're going to do is we're going to look at Melchizedek throughout the scripture. We're going to open the whole breadth of scripture, and we're going to see where he is, and then we're going to combine that knowledge with what we learn here in Hebrews 7, and we're going to order and organize everything that we can know about him. And then lastly, we're going to talk about why this matters for the first century church and then why it matters to us today. So let's pray and then we'll jump in our Jeeps and drive. Lord, we come before you today and we thank you that we have your word. We thank you for your spirit that brings this word alive. And so that's what we're praying for today. That Lord, that you make your word come alive, that you would bring gladness and conviction, that you would do what you need to do in our lives to get our attention, to increase our maturity and our joy in you. And so we pray this in your beautiful name, amen. So Melchizedek is found in only two other spots in our scriptures. First in Genesis 14, and then secondly in Psalm 110. And so we're gonna look here in a second at Genesis 14, but I wanna give you the backstory. 
What is happening in Genesis 14 is it's telling the story of the battle at the Valley of Siddim, which occurred somewhere around 2000 BC. There were five kings that rebelled against a king named Cheddar Laomer. Now, these five kings existed in cities somewhere around the Dead Seas, and they rebelled against Chedorlaomer, who had been their ruler, who had put them in subjugation for the last 12 years. And so these five kings raise up to go against Chedorlaomer, thinking that they could conquer him, but he allies with three other kings. So you have four kings now versus five kings. And what happens is Chedorlaomer and his crew, they quickly put down this rebellion. Now, in that rebellion, after they are victorious, they then, these four kings, begin to plunder the cities around their battles. And so they take all the things that they can take, possessions and people, including taking prisoner a man named Lot. And if you know the name Lot, Lot is the brother of Abraham. And so Abraham gets word that his brother has been taken, and he goes special forces on Chedorlaomer. He gets 318 of his men, a fourth of his army, that goes against this massive combined force at night, and he goes in on this raid, and he absolutely repels them. They leave the land, and Abraham takes back all of the things that were unrightfully taken, brings them all back, all the spoils, all the plunder, including Lot himself. And that That is the context in which we first meet Melchizedek. And so we'll pick this up in chapter 14, verse 17. It says this, After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley, and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And so after the battle, the Valley of Siddam, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, invites Abram to his table. He invites him to his table, bread and wine, alongside Abram's enemy, the king of Sodom. And Melchizedek blesses him. And then Abraham tithes to him a tenth of all of the things that he just took back from these four kings. And so that is the only historical context that we have about the person of Melchizedek in our scripture. He is found in one other spot in our Old Testament. He's found in Psalm 110, a psalm written by King David. It's a prophetic psalm about the promised one, the Messiah who was to come. And this is what David wrote about that promised one. He said that the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so now we remember that a priest is the representation for God's people on earth. You might remember that a prophet is a person who speaks on behalf of God to the people. A priest is the opposite. They are a representation of humankind to a holy God. That's what their job is. And so they would have responsibilities to make sacrifices and to do rituals in the temple on behalf of the people. 
And so one of the qualifications to be a priest in that time would be that you would have to come from a tribe called Levi. There were 12 tribes, if you remember, from the book of Genesis. All priests came from the line of Levi. Now, who was a Levite? Well, Moses was a Levite, and the very first priest was his brother Aaron. And all subsequent priests came from the line of Levi. It was called in the Old Testament a Levitical priesthood. But here in Psalms, David writes that there is one to come who will not come from the line of Levi, but will come from the line of Melchizedek. And this is where we arrive in our text today in Hebrews. All of that is what we have about this mysterious guy. And then here in Hebrews, we hear of him often. And so why Melchizedek? Why Melchizedek, as the kids would call him, right? Melchizedek. Why are we reading about him in the book of Hebrews? Well, I want you to remember, what is the goal of our author in this letter? Well, he's trying to encourage, move forward. He's trying to help his people persevere in the face of opposition and persecution in the world that day. He has reminded them that there is no salvation outside of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, that he is a once and forever sacrifice of sin. On the cross, Jesus atones for our sin. Christ assumes the role of the great high priest, meaning he is the representation for the whole of humanity in front of a holy God. And he does not disappoint us in that role. And so as a great high priest, he brings to us atonement, he brings to us righteousness, and he brings to us peace. And so what is this author dealing with? What is this church dealing with? Well, they are dealing with a group of people, Orthodox Jews, and those who have been enlightened about Jesus in the past, but did not believe they had fallen away. He's dealing with this group of people who are trying to discredit the lordship and the kingship of Jesus. And we've walked through a couple of these slanderous beliefs that they've been trying to educate these, this faithful church, they've been trying to sway this faithful church in the first century. They have come and said, Jesus never existed in a person. He didn't really exist. He was there. I know that you saw him, but he was a spirit. They could not figure out how a God, a holy God, could ever come into sinful human flesh. And so our author takes some time in chapter two to debunk this slanderous belief that Jesus wasn't a flesh, he was just spirit. It's not true. The other thing that he was debunking was this thought that Jesus, if he was God, uh, then how could he have died such a brutal death? Maybe you remember you talking about this. They didn't want to believe that Jesus could be God because why would a God allow himself to be tortured and killed so thoroughly? And the author took some time, answered that question, and he debunked it. Now, here again, we are seeing another slanderous belief that the context of the world, the group of people outside of the church are trying to sway the faithful in the church. They are saying that Jesus could have never been the great high priest because he didn't come from the line of Levi. If we remember, this was a Levitical priesthood in that day. Every person in that church would have known that the priest come from the line of Levi. And so here they are trying to say, just credit Jesus, but of course he can't be our great high priest because he wasn't a Levite. And so in chapter five, our author picks this up, right? He starts to talk about Melchizedek and the great priesthood of Jesus, 
But he stops. He stops because he's about ready to talk about some very heady stuff. And he stops and he rebukes them lovingly and graceful. If we remember in chapter five, just as he's getting started on Melchizedek, he stops and he says this in chapter five, verse 11, and this we have much to say. Like he wants to talk about him. He wants to talk about the priesthood. And it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. He's saying you're lazy. And I need you to pay attention. And so in chapter 7, he picks up this conversation again. And there is a sense in which he is fighting for the attention of his faithful because he wants to reveal to them something deeply important, something of great worth and significant that would surely usher them into a whole new arena of faithfulness, assurance, and hope. In making the connection to Melchizedek, And Jesus, our author, builds upon the elementary doctrines of Christ by revealing a connection to deeper wisdom and truth that his readers have either forgotten about or most likely have never made a connection uh, from in the past. And so this is where we're going to pick up in chapter 7, and we'll look at verse 1 through 3. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. And to him, Abraham appointed, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither a beginning of days nor an end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, there are some obvious phrases that might jump off the pages of Scripture if we're paying attention. And so what I want to do is sort through what we've just learned here in Hebrews 7, along with what we've learned in Psalms and Genesis. And we're going to kind of organize as a whole what we are to learn about Melchizedek. And so we know in this day, through research that he prefigures Christ, meaning that he brings evidence to whom Jesus would be. Now, there are some scholars that believe that Melchizedek is a Christophany. And a Christophany is an appearance of the physical Jesus pre-incarnate in the Old Testament. There are people who argue that this is actually Jesus on earth before he came in in Bethlehem. Now, I don't hold to that belief, and I'll kind of tell you why I don't hold to that belief. I don't think the scripture gives us license, but let's look at what we can learn. There are seven things that we're going to pull from this, these texts. The first is this. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. He is the king of Salem. Salem means peace. Salem is a derivative of the Hebrew word shalom. Now, Melchizedek walked the earth after the flood after God separates the people at the Tower of Babel, he exists before God makes a covenant with Abraham that he would become the father of a mighty nation, a people that would be as numerous as the stars in the sky, a people that belonged to God. Melchizedek existed outside of that covenant. And so our text gives us two attributes that describe him. 
one as righteous and one is of peace. Now, these two attributes are said to denote the highest level of moral character in an individual. One who is righteous and one who is at peace is said to be of the most high moral character and is to be revered. And so we know at minimum that this guy, Melchizedek, has a supreme sort of character. Yet we remember Jesus, right? We remember that the prophet says, Isaiah, in chapter 9, in this great prophecy that says, for unto us a son is born, he talks about Jesus and he gives them four names. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And that he would uphold his kingdom by justice and righteousness. If we remember in our text that Jesus is referred to as the righteous, Christ the righteous. It says in scripture that Jesus is our righteousness. But the apostle Paul also says in the book of Ephesians, speaking of Christ, for he is our peace. And so the association here between Jesus and Melchizedek is in these characters. But even though Melchizedek is the king of righteousness and the king of peace, he could never make one righteous nor could he give someone peace. So the second thing we learn about Melchizedek is that he worships the one true God. So he exists outside the covenant, but he worships the one true God. If we look at his words in Genesis, we see where his devotion lies. In Genesis, it says, God most high. He refers to him as the possessor of heaven and earth. This is the language associated with the Hebrew God, the one true God of the universe that we worship today. Now, obviously, we believe that Jesus is the one true God of the universe, where Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. The third thing that we learn about Melchizedek in light of Jesus is this, that he is a king, but he's also a priest. Melchizedek is a priestly king. He's a priestly king, and no one in our scripture, no man or woman has ever held both of those offices fully, but Jesus did. We remember the prophet Zechariah foretells this about the coming Messiah. In Zechariah 6, he says, it, shall, it is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne and there shall be a priest on his throne and the council of peace shall be between them both. And so this is to say that there will be peace between the kingship and the priestly nature or the priest and the king in that time. Jesus fills and will fill both of those offices, the office of king and priest. Jesus is fully God. He's the fullness and the radiance of God, but he also makes atonement for our sins as the great high priest. The fourth thing that we learn in light of Jesus from Melchizedek is this, is that he's without genealogy, right? It says that he's without mother or father, he's without genealogy. Now, some would say that if there's not a genealogy within scripture, it would denote a divinity of that person. But here it simply means that he is not of the line of Levi. There was a command that all priests must have their lineage known. You must know your ancestors. And so what this is saying is that Melchizedek was a priest not by the appointment of man or by the appointment of his birth. He was appointed in that role by God himself. And we remember in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 5, the truth of who Jesus was, that he himself was appointed by God himself to be the high priest. It says this in chapter 5, 
so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who, who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And so this is the father appointing Jesus as the great high priest. The fifth lesson that we learn here is that Melchizedek is without beginning or end. Right? In Genesis 14, he kind of just comes into the scene out of nowhere, and just as quick as he comes in, he disappears. Here and then gone. And what that denotes in Scripture, it gives us a notion of somebody without a beginning or somebody without an end. It speaks to us about eternity. And so in a sense, the priesthood of Melchizedek is ongoing because it never had an end. And so what did Jesus say about himself in the book of Revelation? That he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, that he never had a beginning, he never had an end, he always existed. And so of course we know that Melchizedek is a human, he did have an end, he did have a beginning, but he doesn't hear in scripture, and that's for a reason, because he is pointing to the person of Jesus. The sixth thing that we notice here is that Melchizedek invited Abram to eat with him at his table in the presence of his enemy. Do you hear another scripture within that? King David says, Lord, in Psalm 23, verse 5, the very famous psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, he says this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Who else? dined in the presence of his enemy. Jesus, at the Passover meal, the night before he was killed, dined with Judas, the one who would betray him. And so in this text, we are connecting Melchizedek with David and then to Jesus. These two royal lines, David from the tribe of Judah, the kingly nature of David, and Melchizedek, the great priest that goes on forever, these become embodied in the person of Jesus. And then the last one, Melchizedek blesses Abraham, number seven, and Abraham ties to Melchizedek. Now, there is significance here in the fact that Melchizedek blessed Abraham and that he tithed to him as well. And so what we want to do is we want to finish out our text here in chapter seven. And so we'll look at this on the screen, verses four through 10 says, see how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law that to take tithes from the people. There is a commandment within our scripture that the people of that day were to give a tithe to the priesthood. They were commanded to do it in scripture. And those tithe came from the people. It, says, it goes on to say this. That is from their brothers. Through these also descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descendants from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him, he who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestors when Melchizedek met him. And so all this is saying, if we're going to boil this down to anything, is that this, is that Melchizedek existed before Abraham. 
And Abraham voluntarily gave him tithe. To give somebody tithe in that day would be a denotion that you are superior than me. In Melchizedek's blessing of Abraham, he is also denoting his superiority to Abraham. Now, if Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek, it means this is that everyone that came from the line of Abraham, the patriarch of the nation of Israel, everyone essentially is then paying tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham. And so that is essentially what this is saying. And it boils down to this, that all he is saying is that the Levitical priesthood is inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood. And it's plain to see. He connects the dots here. Uh, Maybe it's not plain to see for you. Uh, Jesus is better than them all. He, He says that Melchizedek is better than Abraham. That's a big statement. And in here, he is saying that Jesus is better than them all. And so this is a crazy contrast between Jesus and Melchizedek. And so you can maybe see why people might believe that he was, in fact, Jesus. But what we know about Melchizedek is that he is a type. He is something called typology. He's a prophetic symbol that points forward to another time and another person in God's redemptive plan. Melchizedek points God's people forward to Jesus. And so this type or foreshadowing is something that God does consistently throughout his text. And so I just want you to notice this because I think there's some good for us in this. God uses typology within his text to help our understanding. Another typology that we meet is the Passover. A Passover is the celebration of God rescuing his people from Egypt. It is a typology because it points forward to something else. And so what we remember about the Exodus is that during the last plague, God sends down on Egypt. It's a plague of the death of the firstborn sons. God tells his people to sacrifice a pure and spotless lamb to then take the blood of that lamb and wipe it on the wooden doorpost above their house and then to eat of the lamb's flesh. And then on that night, as God's judgment comes upon Egypt, all of those who are under the blood of the lamb, they will be passed by, spared by the judgment of God. And that is a type that points us forward to Jesus, who the disciple John says, behold, the Lamb of God, the spotless Lamb of God who is without sin, whose sandals that I'm not even worthy to walk in, that Jesus is sacrificed as the Lamb of God, and his blood was smeared on the wooden cross. And we who by faith believe in Jesus are under his blood, and we are spared of the judgment of God through Christ. The Passover is a typology. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament is a typology. The tabernacle in the Old Testament is a typology. All of them point forward to Jesus. Melchizedek is a typology that points us forward to Jesus. And so what does this all mean for this little first century church? Well, it is likely that nobody has put this together before. 
It is very likely that until this moment with this writer, nobody has connected the dots between Jesus and Melchizedek. And his heart is full, and he is with joy brimming from his heart, bringing them a higher knowledge to debunk the slander that Jesus could not be the great high priest. Because what he is saying is, look, Jesus is from a better line. You think he should be from the line of Levi, but he's from a better line. He's from the order of Melchizedek. He is better than the Levites. He is better than Abraham. He is better than Melchizedek. Jesus is better than all of them. And that in that day would have given great assurance and strength to the people who are being persecuted in that day. Now, of course, we're not first century Jews. The last time I checked, Nobody in here was a first century Jew. If you are, please inform me afterwards. Uh, we think that this is a pretty cool name, but it doesn't have a whole lot of weight for us in the context of our world. Nobody today is trying to say to you, like, hey, look, you believe in Jesus, but do you really understand that he couldn't be the great high priest because he didn't come from the line of Levite? Like, you're not facing that question today, right? They would have been facing that question in that day. And so what can we glean from this text. Well, I think there are two things that are important for us. The first is, is this, is that every question about Jesus has been answered. Every question about Jesus has been answered. Time and time again in the book of Hebrews, the author is dealing with these slanderous beliefs, these things that are meant to stir up doubt in his people, to cause his people to question. And time and time again, he stands on the authority of scripture with great conviction, and he thwats down these false beliefs. Every, friend, every question about Jesus has been answered. Everything in this world points towards the truth and the reality of Jesus. There is nothing hidden about Jesus. If we have questions, if we have doubts, God has answered. I know that many of us, we have questions about Jesus, we have doubts about Jesus, but we sit and we wrestle with those things and we never have them answered. I'm telling you, every question about Jesus has been answered and you can take it to the bank. There is a good, wonderful explanation for all of our doubts and questions of Jesus. The second is this. The second is this. The unseen goodness of God is overwhelming. So I want you to think about this. God, who out of his love and his care for his people, creates an unseen and often unrealized goodness that comes to us in various forms like typology. Now, I want you to think about this, um, this kind of typology because God so thoroughly wants us to know us, him, that he has gone to great lengths over the course of human history to lay out the, foundation tr the foundational truth layer by layer by layer by layer. Not one at a time that we get overwhelmed, but over the course of history, God has laid out his wisdom layer by layer by layer by layer. The typology of Melchizedek tells us that God wants us to know him, that he doesn't do anything in haste, but from love and goodness, he brings to us his knowledge of who he is slowly, with great detail, and at a level that we can understand, layer by layer by layer by layer. Typology reflects the goodness of God 
and the love that he has for people. So might you this week see all of the unseen goodness that God shows us today that we don't really appreciate. You may have never heard of typology before until today, but there are other unseen goodnesses that God blesses us by that we don't often recognize. Think about this. Think about our ability to be awed by beauty. Like why in the fact I can see with these eyes and somehow in my heart, I am wowed by the majestic beauty that I see in front of me. Why does, uh, that's not necessary. It's the goodness of God. Why is it that I can, with this nose, pick up the smells of various different things, good and bad? Why is that necessary? God didn't need to bless me with a sense of smell, but there are smelly things everywhere. And we get to enjoy those things. Laughter, laughter. Like, why is laughter necessary? It is a good gift from God for our relationships, and for our joy. There are wonderful things that God has given to us that are unseen, that reflect his goodness. And so let us see Melchizedek today as the guarantee that God answers our questions, all of our questions about Jesus, and that in the typology of Melchizedek, we know that there is unseen goodness that God brings to us out of his love and his care for us.